What's up, you guys? Joshua Loya, your friendly neighborhood Jedi. I wanted to share with you real quick a way to make sure you do not miss a single episode. Episode? That's a weird way to pronounce that. Anyway, make sure you don't miss a single edition of the show. Go to www.adventuremind.net slash join. That is www.adventuremind.net slash J-O-I-N. And you can subscribe. There are links there to subscribe to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Overcast or any of the different places you might want to uh, make sure that you get the show. So you got options. We like options. And we like you to listen to every single show if that is what your desire is to do. All right. <laughs> so thank you for indulging me, you guys. Again, I want to make sure you don't miss a single show. www.adventuremind.net slash join. This episode was so awesome to record. I had to pinch myself multiple times to make sure that I actually responded back to my next guest because he is such a joy to listen to. If any of you are lovers of audiobooks as much as I am, you will have heard his voice many, many times. Without further ado, Mr. Scott Brick. Aloha, Warriors. I have with me uh, a teller of tales, a narrator of words. I'm sure there's got to be a word for story with the letter N for uh, some alliteration, but I have with me uh, Mr. Scott Brick. How are you, sir? I am well. How are you, man? Doing well. It's been over a year. We usually see each other at least once a year. Uh, yes, Comic-Con we do. Every year. And, and uh, what I love about this is uh, it has been my privilege to interview you uh, three times now, four times now? We Something did, like uh, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, we kind of throw a little bit of that in there. And, yeah. And then... Usually I'm the one interviewing you, so uh, the shoe's on the other foot. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here as your guest. One of the most fascinating stories you ever told me was just sort of offhand, um, and you had uh, performed now a now wedding. I'm fascinated. I don't, you, I'm you, trying you, were, to remember. you had uh, presided over a wedding, and you have that beautiful ring that uh oh yeah that, that superman ring and and you you were telling me and my wife andrea that you saw this i don't know if at the time you were aware of who it was but in the back you saw this guy in the back just staring at your hand the whole time and then later at the end of the after the ceremony it turns out that seth green was there and he was the one that was staring at your hand <laughs> right. and all he could do was fixate and say ask you where you got your ring or some something to that end i think yes um uh, so, yes, I was um, um, marrying two dear friends of mine, uh, one of whom um, uh, works with Seth on Robot Chicken. Um, matter of fact, I think at the time of the wedding, they hadn't even started the show yet, but it's uh, Douglas, Goldstein, uh, Douglas Goldstein and his wife, Rebecca. And uh, it was the second time I'd ever officiated a, a wedding. I, I, I told my pastor at the time, I said, I just, got, I just got booked to do my second wedding. I said, I've been going to church my whole life, but I, <laughs> I never thought there was room for advancement. Um, and he, uh, uh, anyway, so I'm, so I'm marrying Seth, and he's a lovely guy, but he's always mobbed. And even, even in, always, exactly, no matter where he goes. And um, uh, so, yes, he was standing in the back and I see this guy and I, I, I don't, I don't mean to be doing a short joke, but it's like, you notice people when they're so much smaller than the person next to them. And he sure. was standing next to somebody much 
taller. So that's that's how I realized. Well, I didn't realize who it was, but I'm like, oh, okay, there's this guy back there who's, you know. Um, anyway, I was wearing my Superman ring, and it is, um, I got it at Comic-Con, God, 20 years ago. And it is the uh, the S logo, um, the famous logo, and um, <laughs> the same one I had, I, I had made the mistake of, of wearing to a, a dinner with the DC Comics editors, and they said, hey, I like your ring. Is, is that official? <laughs> is that licensed? Is that one of ours? And I went, oh, shit, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Anyway, so I was wearing it during the wedding, uh, and, and while I was holding my, my book, uh, I had a book open to make, right. to make it look like I was, you know, <laughs> using All Bible or whatever. Yes, to make and, it look like I, yeah. was, like I knew what I was doing. Yeah. And um, Seth walks up afterwards, and he said, hey, man, that, that was a great ceremony. Uh, where'd you get that ring? I really want to I really want to get one of those. And, and that, he was just like <laughs> quizzing me on it for like five minutes. I was like, dude, I'm sorry. The company went out of business. I've tried to get a replacement myself. D- and, didn't you? Keep going, please. Well, I, 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 my first thought was I was wearing it on my left hand. I was holding the book in my left hand. The ring was facing the ground the whole time. I was like, how did you see it? And I almost and asked then you him, realized, but then I realized oh, no. that would sound like a short <laughs> joke. And I'm, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> anyway. Always, my... always the classy guy there. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's so funny too. I was actually just talking about um, the weirdness sometimes of meeting people uh-huh. uh, with, uh, with a, a, uh, on another episode we recorded uh, late last week. Uh, former guest uh, that, that will be on the show by the, already by the time you hear this, uh, Liam Irvin, he's another blind guy that's like me, but he, um, huge fan of your work as a lot of people are. Oh, that's nice. Thank and, you. and, uh, you know, when you meet people, it, it throws you off, you know, like, of course you met Seth and, you know, I made the mistake the first year that I met you in person of, I don't remember actually which book it was. Um, I think actually it might've been Blue Like Jazz, which is a really cool book, by the way. Uh, did a good I loved job on that, that book. Thank you. I appreciate um, it. But I was listening to that book leading up to the first year of Comic-Con that we we shared the stage together. Mm-hmm. And when you and I first met, I could not process the actual words that were coming out of your mouth for about 20 minutes because I, I all I could think about was, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, that's the guy that records, you know. And, you know, it's the same thing, I'm sure. Like if you ever go into a radio station and, you, you know, you've, you're used to hearing the host or um, have you ever had – obviously, you have the whole thing with, with Seth. I actually had a similar thing when I met um, – uh, your friend Townsend. Uh, oh, sure. Who does Townsend the, Coleman? Absolutely. Yeah, he's, so, uh, uh, which was he? Is he Michelangelo? I forget which. My, one yeah, I think it was Michelangelo. It was yeah, Michelangelo yeah, yeah. because I met him briefly. Yeah. And uh, spoke to him just a few minutes because I had come to support. That's right. One because year. I do. Uh, that's right. We did that another same year. panel. It was the voiceover yep. panel that I do with Townsend, mm-hmm. and you and Andrea came. That was uh, yep. that was great. And then afterwards, I'm talking to him, and then he goes, because he knows I'm a huge Ninja Turtles fan, and Ninja Turtles, Michelangelo in particular, was uh, a huge inspiration in terms of me getting involved in martial arts. He launches into, like, Michelangelo, like, on a dime, and I couldn't, I I was, didn't know how to really process. I'm like, he's a cool guy, he's a person, but, (laughs) you know, that's sort of the, I think when you get intimately connected to a voice, and maybe it's audio in particular, I don't know. Um, but you get so comfortable with that voice and absorbing the content that you 
you find it difficult to actually realize, oh, that's an actual person. I still right. even, as you and I are talking now, because you're actually recording in your, your audio booth right now, right. I still have to go, oh, right. I'm actually cut. I can't just stop and listen to what he's saying. He's not narrating something to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it is very interesting when I meet people who, um, who listen a great deal and I, I'm, it's going to sound like I'm, like I'm name dropping here and I really don't mean to, although ah, I do have a, I think people will find it interesting. Don't well, worry about I, it. I, I have a, I have a standard line that I do, uh, just to be, you know, sarcastic. I say, you know, um, I remember once Peter O'Toole told me never drop names. Um, but, um, <laughs> I, uh, I know Alex Ross. I haven't spoken to him in way too long, but, um, the fame, famous comic book artist. And sure. Back in the day, I used to write for wizard magazine for about three years, did about 300 articles for them in about three years, right before I started narrating, uh, narrating. So this would have been the late nineties. And, and I asked him one time, I said, you know, what's it like being a famous, a famous comic book artist? He says, it's like being the most anonymous guy in the world. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm yes. Within a small circle, a small group of people, people know my name. And he said, but unless I can walk into a bar and say, hey, baby, I paint Superman and get a date, then what, you know, what use is that? That's not fame. <laughs> what, he, did, he didn't say, you know, it's, uh, what use is it? He said, it's not fame unless you can walk up to somebody and say, you know, I draw Superman yeah. and go out with me. Sure. And um, uh, uh, it just it cracks me up no end because I feel that way now. Every time somebody says, what's it feel like to be a famous uh, audiobook narrator. I said, it feels like you should have a better definition of the word famous. Um, you know, uh, but I, I, I will admit you are pretty prolific though. I mean, you know, to be on, I mean, what is it like 350 or more, uh, books now? It, it's actually a thousand. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was, I was reading an old bio then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do about 50 a year. Um, I started in 1999. So I, to be honest, I don't have an exact count. Um, I, uh, but yeah, I, I, I work a lot and I'm grateful and people know my name and it's weird. Uh, uh, especially if it's a famous person, I've had people tweet me. I've had podcasts mention me. I have had Stephen King mentioned my name in print a couple of times and I'm like, dude, I've been reading. Have your you read work anything for was... him, by the way? Apparently, I did a short story for him about twenty <laughs> See, years ago. That, that's funny I, to me that you you've you, you've done so much work you can't remember that you did. Work oh no, for I one can't, of the most I, famous I, authors in the in history I, of literature. I I know I know, <laughs> um, uh, and, and it, it makes me wonder why the hell was I so blasé twenty years ago, like when I was a rookie at this, uh, because I would kill to be. I I revere Stephen King so much. He he personally inspires me. He is one of my literary heroes. Um, and to be able to read his words aloud would be a dream come true. So it's just weird that the guy knows my name. <laughs> I mean, you've read some pretty like phenomenal books. I mean, obviously yeah. some of the highlights one, you know, that some people were heard, you, you know, you did Jurassic Park, you did, uh, I know you did at least the first, I can't, I haven't actually read through all of them. Uh, some of the Dune series, uh, you I have did done, I think, uh, a bunch of the Shannara books. Yes, I think I did. I've done every single Dune book, um, whether the ones that Frank did or that uh, Brian and Kevin have been doing, the prequels and sequels. Um, matter of fact, I've got, uh, if you don't mind, a shameless plug. Yeah, um, go for it. 
Well, uh, a, a passion project I've been working on for the last several months. Um, Brian Herbert, Frank Herbert's son, sure, wrote a marvelous um, biography of, of Frank. I want to say it was back in 2003. It was called Dreamer of Dune. And for whatever reason, yeah, look, audiobooks were so kind of in their infancy then. Uh, there were no digital. Certainly nothing like we Nothing have now. like today. The yeah. iPod hadn't, been, hadn't come out yet, let alone, you know, being able to play them on your phone. So um, an app was still a, gl a glimmer in somebody's eye at that point. So, um, so the publisher didn't want to do the audiobook. But Brian and I have become very good friends over the years. We speak... Lengthy conversations when every single time a new volume comes out and we go over the pronunciations. And um, um, he has longed to tell the story of his parents. It's a biography of Frank Herbert, but it is equally as much so about Beverly, his mother. Um, she died two years before Frank, and Frank died far too young. I think he was in his mid-60s. Um, and Beverly was the caretaker of the Dune franchise and the inspiration for the Dune franchise. And um, Brian lost them at an early age. I think he was in his mid-30s when it happened. Uh, and, that's rough. Yeah. yeah. It was it, so many times while I was recording this biography, I just I had to stop recording because I was weeping. Um, she didn't live to see uh, David Lynch's film come out. They had been trying to make this movie for almost 20 years at that point, uh, 10 years in earnest um, since the 70s. And the um, and she said, and she had inoperable cancer for 10 or 11 years at the end. And she said, I will hold on, I will hold on, and I will I'll make it long enough to see the film. And she didn't. She passed a handful of months before it came out. And at the premiere, which he actually arranged to have a private premiere, for her caretakers at her hospital oh, wow. in Seattle. That's beautiful. Yeah. They flew executives up there. They flew press out there. And and the family was there. And he went up in front of everybody. And he was overcome with emotion. And he said, this is for Bev. And, you know, that kind of love inspires me. And when I read this book, I was like, Brian... I don't know I don't know why it hasn't been done thus far, but can I do this? And he, he was asking me to do it, and I said, I would be honored. So I went to the publisher, and I bought the rights. And, um, um, yeah, we're going to be publishing it. Um, it looks like we were going to have it come out right before the film, and I believe the film has been delayed. The film was going to come out in December. We were going to put it out in November. Uh, I'm sure. Gonna, I'll check with Brian if... Do they uh, have an announced release date for the film now? I don't I know. know. Things are kind of up in the air for at the time a lot of we're, major films. Exactly. At the, at the time, as of we're recording this, Brian still doesn't know. And I don't know that it's been announced officially. But it will be coming out soon and uh, available for pre-order soon. So if anybody's interested, I hope you'll check it out. And I'm sorry because I've totally uh, uh, misdirected the conversation. You were talking about the Dune oh, franchise. Oh, that's, that's fine. I'm... This is the that's the whole beautiful thing about podcasting is versus, you know, um, like a straight radio interview. There's no hard time as far as mm. you know, we can. And I, I really try with with this particular podcast, the, the podcast that I really appreciate and whose talent I admire 
even if I differ with their particular perspectives on things, is organic conversation. So, you know, there's there's no bullet points we have to get to. So we're we're good. Good, good, good. Um, but I think we're just talking about the the weirdness of of meeting people for the first time. And and, you know, I have to say, it's it's um. I think it's different for everybody because not everybody likes the same things. Obviously, some of us like Westerns, others like romances, others, uh, I love science fiction and mysteries. But just as an example, and staying with the Dune franchise, when I first started working on it, it was 2002, I want to say. And I had been a massive Frank Herbert fan since college. And this was about... 15, maybe a little less than 20 years after that. And the next thing I know, I'm talking with Brian about pronunciations, and he says, well, I'll fax you my father's notes. And suddenly I've got Frank Herbert's (laughs) notes coming out of my fax machine, my thermal paper fax machine, which, by the way, I still have. Not the fax machine, but I still have that sheet of paper. Of course you do. It is as faded as can be. And and, and just before it lost all pigmentation, I I did a scan of it because I never want to lose it. Um, But it's that way. When I look in my phone book, in in my contacts list, I'm like... All these best-selling authors whose work I've been a fan of for years, now I get paid to do their work. I get paid to read their words aloud, and I've got their numbers in my book. This is weird, you know, but I'll take it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, and, and I think one of the things that's important, and I think that, you know, you've been on um, in front of the camera. You've done some acting as well, and, and I think that um, the trick with this is to to treat people like real people, whether – they are a person of uh, notability, or, or, um, and not notability. Um, you know, Notori- they're well known. Sure, yeah. notoriety is exactly Notori- the yeah. word I was looking for. I don't know. I'm only forty years old. I'm too early for that stuff. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but the thing is, is like uh, you, you treat people like people, one way or the other, yeah. right? Because, and I think that it keeps you from getting starstruck. I mean, I, I, you know, I played in rock bands, you know, for a while, and I've I've met a couple of famous people, and and, um. The inside, I'm kind of going, holy crap, I'm meeting this person. Um, at the same time, as long as you can kind of just remember, hey, they're a real person. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that that helps a lot because, you know, um, one of the things that really impresses me, and I know I, I probably mention him every single time we meet, mostly because his content is relevant to our, our panel, but um, uh, Scott Sigler, who I have uh, sure. become very – uh, fortunate to become friends with um, he one of the things that he witnessed you know signing and at at uh you know all the different cons and stuff and he um he there's an author who will remain nameless because it's unfortunately not very flattering um this this fan had come up they were both doing signings next to each other you know you have that that alley where people come and they'll oh, all sign a book and you yeah sign the autograph alley sure. right and Scott was signing next to this much more famous author. And you could tell that this fan was really enthusiastic about this author's work. And the the author was almost dismissive. Not quite, but yeah. I think, you know, quite understandably, they might have just been tired because they've just, you know, cons can be exhausting even if you're not presenting. Yeah. And Scott, you know, resolved to always you know, remember, hey, you know, this person who's probably socially awkward, uh, who probably barely gets out anyway, has gone out of the way to come to this 
giant throng of people to tell me how much, how amazing my books are. The last thing I'm going to do is not appreciate the investment of time and yeah. emotional energy they're putting into what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, these are my words, not necessarily Scott's, but I think that there's something to be said for that. You know, there really you is. You treat people like people and amazingly the types of conversations you have and interactions you have are, are much more than they would have been, at least in your imagination, I think. Well, you know, look, as you said, somebody has made the investment of time to follow your work, to invest themselves in your work. If they are a fan of you, they have spent time with you remotely, right? And then yeah. they are going to go out of their way to a place where you are. Or even if they were already going to be there, they're going to go out of their way to find you in this particular aisle of this particular room at this particular time so they can meet you. How can you be dismissive of that? I do not understand. I was not born with that gene. I, 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 I'd like to share a story if I could. It was actually, yeah, go for it. It was one of them. It was, it was a profoundly moving experience I had at conventions. Um, <laughs> even when you grow up in geek culture, nerd culture, right? Uh, look, that's me. I'm a founding member. I was born the year, uh, <laughs> the same year as Star Trek. Okay, I've been a Trekkie, and screw the politically accurate, you know, uh, way Trekker. Screw that. Come on, I'm a Trekkie. Um, I was born into it. Okay, and I have been going to science fiction and comic book conventions since I was nine years old. And nevertheless, you find yourself making jokes, right? Of about, course, about geeks. Right. Even in, in what self-deprecation is the, is the name yes. of the game, really. More often than not, it's self-deprecating. But I was, it was the craziest circumstance. A friend of mine uh, was trying. He wanted to go. To, I, I had gotten him into Star Trek. Uh, this was God, 20 years ago, easily. Long, actually, long before I started narrating audiobooks, I think I was writing science fiction and comic book articles, articles at the time. And we went to the huge Star Trek con out in Pasadena. And, and I'd been to a number of them over the years, but my friend Jim, God rest his soul, Jim Mahowski, he said, I want to go to a Star Trek convention, but I need your help. And I said, how can I help? Because I need you to go with me. And I was like, well, I wasn't going to go this year. He goes, I'll pay your way. I said, why would you want to do that? He said, I'm trying to impress a woman who's going to be there. I'm like, okay. First of all, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think I think there's you're so like, many you're ways. You're using this, me to this, to impress you. Right, it's like this, there's so many ways this can go bad, right? You know, um, and 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 he talked me into it. He goes, I I just I am really leery. I am afraid that I'm going to be there and I'm going to look like a geek in front of her. I said, dude, here's the thing. All of us, 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 because I am one. All of us who walk in the door of a convention, we are geeks. It's okay. Embrace and how are you going to look less geeky if you're if you're hanging out with Star me. Trek convention? Right. Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I swear to God, he talked me into it by saying one of the funniest lines I've ever heard. He goes, "Please, I'm begging you, be my own private Fonzie." And I, I remember, I will never forget watching the very <laughs> first episode of Happy Days, going, "Wow." You were a wordsmith, sir. Okay, fine. I'll go with you. So uh, so I went, and uh, meeting the woman it didn't go well. She wanted to go out with me. That, but uh, that's not the point of the story. Um, I was, Humble brag there, Scott? It, well, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, Peter O'Toole once told me, never humble brag. Um, but I was saving uh, seats in the grand ballroom, like 3,000-seat ballroom, where the cast of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine were going to come. 
and um, because they were kind of doing the handoff at the time um, um, when Deep Space Nine had just debuted. And I was going in to save seats for Jim and I. And I'm sitting on the aisle, and I've got a very cool Star Trek T-shirt. It looks like uh, something, oh, it's like an Andy Warhol design. Um, okay. and this was like 25 years ago. Um, um, every square inch of the T-shirt was the design, front and back, even in the armpits, even, even on, the, uh, even on the, um, um, the collar of it. Uh, every square inch was taken up with this wonderful design of um, um, Kirk, Spock, McCoy. And this guy walks past me, and he is the quintessential socially awkward geek. He sure. is the guy who you imagine living in his parents' basement under neon lights so, because his his skin is so startlingly white and bright and he has got greasy, stringy hair like two feet long and thick, thick glasses and he is thin as a rail and he comes by and he, and he looks at my shirt and he lifts up his left hand in the Vulcan salute, the split-fingered salute, and he says in a very timid voice, Amen cool shirt and my first thought was oh my god oh my god i've never seen a geek like this in my life. oh my god this is this is this is what we think of it and my first thought I, I started going into kind of geek humor and i realized it wasn't self-deprecating and then i realized who the fuck am i i'm sorry i don't mm -hmm. know if, if you're the no 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 we're class. unfiltered go okay, by all good. means who the fuck am i to judge anybody else who was a fan and even if everything that I just thought about him is correct, what if he lives in his parents' basement? What if he is so socially awkward that he can't hold a job? Or when he goes to school, he gets beaten up because he's different. You know what? God damn it, there's a place one weekend every year. He pays for the privilege, but one weekend a year, he can go to a place and nobody will judge him. And who the hell am I? to be one of the people who does. And I lifted my hand in reply and I said, I grok Spock. And I've, I've just, I've never forgotten that moment. I wish I had taken the time to get to know him and I wish we were still in touch. But um, I, I, I think about that every time I go to a convention. Yeah. Every time I go to a convention and I see people going to crazy extremes, cosplay extremes and what have you, I'm like, you know what? I have a newfound respect for the fact that there is a place that you can do that and not be judged. And thank God. You know, it's funny you talk about that. Um, and, you know, in high school, I had kind of a I had moved away for most of my middle school years and I had moved back just before high school. I had moved out to Ohio and came back to California. And I had had a friend. He and I were nerds together in mm -hmm. elementary school. You know, we liked. We liked our Ninja Turtles. We liked our Star Trek. We liked our, um, I don't even know how many times we watched uh, the uh, two-parter of, um, you know, Picard becoming Locutus. And the, oh, you know, yeah, the, sure. Um, and, uh, and when I came back to high school, I had moved back to the same area. And I was still pretty nerdy, but I was still... I was kind of shifting into cool nerdy because that was when right. in the early nineties and I, and I, during high school, I kind of slipped into that sort of 
uh, goth persuasion for a while. And so you could kind of hide behind that. And we had our own expectation. That was cool for a lot of people that wasn't cool anyway, but we thought we were cool. Um, and he was a good friend when I was in elementary school, mm-hmm. but I completely snubbed him and I never connected. And I joined in because even though we were dorks, we weren't as dorky as his group was. And I, I, I still regret right. it to this day. Like I, you know, graduated high school over 20 years ago. Um, and yet I still think about, yeah, you know, the, the dumb nature of, you know, now I'll, I'll be friends with anybody. I mean, like I, one of the things that, that, um, has been, I mean, obviously you gotta be kind, you know, I got my limits as far as who I'll be friends with, but it, you know, you, cause you've been around, obviously had a lot of visually impaired people come up to you and things like that. Uh, people with different disabilities and things. Um, I have, was always fairly uncomfortable with people on the autism spectrum cause I just didn't understand it. Sure. I didn't get it. And the, the organization that I surf with, we have a surf club. It's really inclusive where we have people who like me are totally blind. We have people who are, uh, you know, have had significant spinal cord injuries or limb, amp- limb oh amputation, God. things like that. And we have a lot of people that are on the spectrum and sure. some are, and there's a wide range. There are some people that are very verbal. There's some people that aren't verbal at all. Some people that when they're very delighted and they're getting help out in the water, they make their joy noises are like dolphins, you know? And so they're, they're very, yeah. it's off-putting if you're not familiar with it. Um, and it, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed when I was younger, I used to feel like, well, is like I had this weird sense. Um, th- and I was afraid of being lumped in with that group. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid of just people. Cause a lot of times people assume because you're blind, you have a cognitive disability as well. And right. I, I, th- I think, we all have our moments checking ourselves of kind of going, whether it's, you know, it's the geek thing or whether it's a disability thing or what have you, like we don't have to understand it to still treat somebody like they matter and still meet somebody where they are. Yeah. Oh God. I, I, man, that's one of my favorite phrases. And uh, look, I'm not here to be political or to be really, oh, be, but, hey, well, be as unfiltered look, as you want, man. Okay, I don't great. I, I have been political and I have been religious, uh, throughout my life. Uh, not in the way most people assume I would be when they hear those two words together. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, um, you, you don't strike me as the Pat Robertson type. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, I am quite the opposite. Um, but, um, the phrase that you said, you know, meet them where they are. There's, there's a, the, uh, years ago, I was working on a story about the Apostle Paul, and what really struck me was that when he is Saul, um, uh, the Pharisee, Christ comes to him on the road, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm like, that's that is a wonderful, oh, it's a wonderful example. Christ came to him where he was. He didn't wait for him. Christ didn't wait for Saul to find him. He went to him on the road. And I'm like, that's the way I try to approach people. It's like, wherever you are, whatever your ability or, I hate the word disability, but, you know, whatever your persuasion, wherever, however you think, can we find common ground? Can we meet there and discuss? And um, I know what you mean about being 
kind of afraid of being lumped in with you know the the other and i'm embarrassed to to admit it but i mean i'd be lying if i said that wasn't a thought of mine very much less so now not really now but certainly for a period of time that was definitely my mindset i totally get it and 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 i there's so many things in my life that i i god i wish i'd behaved better and I, i i hate i just hate shame you know uh, pain is not necessarily a bad thing. Pain teaches you to do things differently that you need to do in order to survive. Shame serves nobody. Um, but there are things in my life I'm very ashamed of. And I wish it wasn't all a process, but it is. When nobody, nobody was born woke. We are taught to be woke, right? And I, I remember um, when, I, when I was in... Uh, a senior in high school and I graduated and I went to work and I made a very intolerant joke to somebody who was gay. And, and I remember their response and how offended they were and the, they walked away from me. And, um, look, it's, it, it's a sad fact of life. Everybody has done that. Everybody has told a joke about an ethnicity or a, gender or or a sexual persuasion a, a sexual choice whatever proper word is jesus yeah, 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 see, yeah, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is everybody has done it and i did it and i remember when i saw his response i remember thinking you're old enough to know better why the fuck would you do that you know better and I wound up, this was at orientation for working at Disneyland, right? This was orientation they had to go through and you learn the history of the company. And my first day was two weeks later. Not only was I put in the same department as him, on, uh, you know, working in the exact same location, we were on the same mm-hmm. shift. And there he was, there was Michael. And he ran over and he gave me a bear hug. And he says, oh, it's so good to see you again. It's so nice to know that I have a f- I'm brand new here, and, y- and yet I have a friend. And I remember thinking, I offended you two weeks ago. You were treating me far better than I deserve. But the fact of the matter is, my evolution wasn't done at that point. I don't, it's, oh, it's, it's, it never, it's never is. It's never, never done. Is. But, but, I, I but think... had, I not, had that not happened, it had, ne- had he not shown me the grace to forgive me, I don't think I, I don't think I would have gotten as far as I am today. Well, and then the other part of it, and I think this is really the the really difficult part. Um, we can make mistakes, and we can do our best to make it right with other people, and we can be the mature person and forgive people when we're on the receiving end. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things, oftentimes, to do but a necessary one is for us to forgive ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like you, I am unconventionally religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's a nice way to sure. put it. Sure. Uh, um, and, you know, it was the thing that, you know, Jesus talked about is love your neighbors, you know, as yourself, right? As yourself. And people forget and, and, about that part. Well, and that's, and that's really the thing is I think that that commandment or ad, is not only a commandment, but also an admonition, because I think it's prescriptive, but I think it's also descriptive. And mm-hmm. if we cannot love ourselves, there is a limit to how effectively we can love others. I completely My, agree. I know way too many Scots. It's really weird. I've had, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I, another Scott that was on here, um, 
my uh, my Kempo instructor and also my former pastor, uh, he he once told a, a woman that he was counseling, um, "Thank you for disobeying that command," because she treated everybody great, but she treated herself like absolute garbage. Mm. And there's a limit. We'll wear ourselves out. And I think that yeah. learning to um, learning to love ourselves is huge. And I think that it's really easy for me. Like I, I got stuck in a situation where I was my first search coach. Um, I was starting to really question my value as an athlete and some of the competition, Mm. you know, accomplishments that I'd had and and some of the things. And, um, and once I got away from that, got some emotional distance and I started, uh, working with my most recent coach who really good friends of my, a friend of mine, um, I started loving surfing for its sake again mm-hmm. and being being more aware of my own value, not in a cocky way, not in an arrogance way, but doing things that were good for me because they were good for me. And it didn't matter whether or not somebody else noticed them. It didn't matter whether or not I got an award. It didn't matter whether or not uh, some local news wanted to go, oh, wow, you're so inspiring, I- any of that. And um a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think that the forgiving ourselves when we've made a mistake, I think is important. Yes, we need to be absolutely be aware when yeah. we mess up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we might have resolved something and then somebody comes back and catches us in a tweet we put out 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I mean, cancel I think culture were, goes crazy, right? It, it does go pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, you know, without, you know, like I'm, I'm thinking like Kevin Hart, he had he had tweeted something like ten years ago yeah. prior to his thing, and he lost the, the his Oscar job because of something yeah. he had tweeted almost a decade ago. Yeah. And I, I get it, and he can, you know, kind of say, "Hey, you know, this is it." I um, do what he did. I don't even remember his response really fully. I, I think he had a pretty reasonable one, but regardless, um, you know, forgiving ourselves that that way we can not get ourselves spun out. I guess where I'm going with is we can get so spun out by somebody's take on us, you know, somebody getting offended at a book we, well, you narrated or, or somebody getting offended at a joke that I told 10, you know, I haven't been a comic for more than a handful of years, but you know, there are sets that I have recorded that I'm never putting out because in the moment of inspiration, I said something like, yeah, let me dial that back. And literally a joke that I told in November of last year, in retrospect, in kind of in context with some of the, the um, you know, police brutality stuff and some of the issues mm-hmm. with like with George Floyd and everything, it was it was not a joke uh, about black people. It was a joke about racism, but the way in which I delivered it could be interpreted, sure, in a very funky way. And you know, I gotta forgive myself for and adjust that, and then do it in a way that's more affirmative of the things that I would want to promote. You know, I'm really glad this conversation has come up because uh, ordinarily when I, when I speak with people, what they want to know is, Hey, what's the latest release? And what did you think about, you know, um, um, so-and-so latest book and uh, tell me about your career. You know, I want to be a voiceover artist, whatever. Um, I love talking about things that matter. And when I, as you were just talking there and forgive me if I interrupted you, if you weren't finished. Oh, you're fine. Go for it. Well, I am reminded of the case of Riley Cooper, who was uh, an, a former NFL football player. He was a wide receiver who played for um, um, the Philadelphia Eagles. 
Am I having this wrong? Was he one of the first openly gay football players? No, no, no. Okay. I, uh, you're thinking I'm of Michael blank. Sam. I am. Uh, yes, I am. Michael Sam yeah. was was drafted, but unfortunately the NFL wasn't brave enough to actually right. hire him, put him on a fucking team. Uh, don't get me started on really? the NFL. <laughs> yeah. um, um, just, just the fact that he was out made them run away from him, you bastards. Um, but they have made very clear... Uh, they have a long history of being intolerant. Um, um, anyway, Riley Cooper. Riley Cooper is right. a was a white player for the Eagles, and he was drunk one night at a, um, a country music concert, and he was taped on somebody's phone. They shot video of him saying the N word when he was confronted by a black security officer. Um, what I love about his story was his apology. Um, not once did the phrase, that's not who I am, come out of his mouth. And nothing offends me more than when somebody gets caught. If, if you were afraid, if, if when you were caught, you say you're sorry and you think that's enough, what I start examining is, well, what are you sorry for? Are you sorry that you did this or are you sorry that you got caught and you're mouthing the appropriate phrases? If you say, I'm sorry, that's not who I am. Well, yes, it fucking is. Because it came out of who when you the, were. Yeah, when the chips <laughs> fell, you know, when the shit hit the fan and the rubber hit the road, God damn it, that's what you said. Here I am talking about being religious and I just said that. I'm sorry. Um, but I, I think God's bigger. He's, he's not, you I, know, I, I, I don't hear the, th the thunder crackling. Well, you know so. what? I'm in a booth, so. Please God, I hope you, yeah, hope you didn't hear me. Um, anyway, um, um, when people say it's not who I am, you are so full of shit. That is exactly who you are. Um, I know what it's like to fail when, 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 when the stakes are at their highest. It's happened to me, and I try to be better as a result of it. I try to use it as a lesson, learn, and become better. Riley Cooper said, I am genuinely sorry. I will live the rest of my career and the rest of my life apologizing to everybody I offended, but especially to my teammates who are primarily black who deserve better from me. And I will never stop apologizing to my parents because they taught me better than this. And they don't deserve for me to be a reflection on what they taught me. And I remember thinking, okay, now that is genuine. That, that is, is beautiful. That is a man. For one particular reason that he didn't apologize for how other people felt either. Mm -hmm. He apologized for what he did. Guys, men and women, but primarily men, if you, the words ever come out of your mouth, well, I'm sorry you were offended. I'm sorry if I offended anybody. You know what? The non-apology apology is not a fucking apology. So, it's like stabbing somebody and apologizing to somebody that they're bleeding. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sorry if that injury that I caused you actually causes you to die, you know, but, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a justification and nothing more. And the reason I bring this up is to get back to what you were talking about, forgiving yourself. In the same way, I look at everyone, the myriad of people who, who, uh, there, there was an NFL player recently who said something horribly anti-Semitic on Twitter about two months ago, and I'm blanking. It, ironically, it was another Eagles player. It was a black Eagles player, and I was like, wait Didn't a minute. Didn't Michael Vick also play for the Eagles at one point? He did, speaking it's of a, which, What is with the Eagles well, of having such pieces? Here, here's the thing. Their, 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 their owner 
is is such a progressive guy as far as i know i don't know his politics right i'm just, but I'm just like if you say, look at a team you're like like well that guy and that guy and that well, guy. look uh, fact of the matter is there's there's a number of coaches you can point to i'm a huge nfl fan a number of people who are like i don't care about the problems you've had before i don't care if other people cut you loose i see value in you and right. and the eagles owner is willing to give people second chances um matter of fact riley cooper a year or two later they 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 gave him a really good contract and it was like, well, yeah, because you have demonstrated um, repentance. Repentance isn't being sorry. Repentance is acting as though you were sorry. Repentance is saying, I, w- I am striving to be better. Michael Vick, he went and he began speaking to youths, saying, you know, don't do this. Don't do what I did. Please learn from my mistake and do not commit the evil that I committed. And I respect that. But in the same way that I look at this guy, this the, the NFL player whose name sadly now escapes me, he said something horribly anti-Semitic. And his owner, the Eagles' owner, is Jewish. And, and he offended his owner. In the same way that I look at him and I'm like, well, you know what? I don't know what's in his heart. I know it came out of his mouth, but I want to see, is he, will he act as though he is sorry? I judge others according to what they do, right, um, uh, going forward after the mistake. Sure. Then I think, okay, well, I try to do better after a mistake. Why am I not? And, and if I see somebody like, like Michael Vick, you know, or Riley Cooper, I'm like, you know what? They've been commendable in their post-mistake history. And if you can get past the mistake, then they are a decent human being who deserves my respect. Why am I not offering that to myself? And we, we, you, we were just talking a while back about self-forgiveness, treating sure. others as you would resp- yourself. It is that coda as you would yourself. Why, why, if I'm forgiving others, why am I not forgiving myself? And, and I'm the first one to, to say I, I don't do it anywhere often enough. But I remember Jim Kermath. He is my dear friend. He is my pastor. He is my former pastor as well because he was out of the ministry for about 20 years and then he became my life coach. He actually helped me become a, a, a writer and a narrator. Um, Very cool. Yeah. And um, I remember one time, it was an Easter morning, and he gave this very non-traditional Easter service. Um, n- non-traditional in terms of, of um, um, his message and he, um, he told a very painful story of an opportunity that he had with a family member and their sudden death. It was his uncle. And he said, um, he said, I suddenly realized that I had failed and my failure would be a permanent one because I will never get the opportunity to fix it because he is gone. And, and I was profoundly moved. I was crying in my seat. At his, at his willingness to share this pain with us so that we might benefit. And I, I walked up to him afterwards, and, and we knew each other a little bit then. He knew I was an, I was an actor. And, and um, anyway, I said, Jim, I am truly grateful for your willingness to share your pain with us so that we might learn. And he looked at me, and he, he said, well, that's kind of our job, isn't it? But he said the word our, and I was like, um... I'm not a pastor. I'm, he goes, I know. I know you're not a pastor. You're an actor. And yet, you have a platform. 
you share stories with people. And both, the job of both of us is to be willing to share the good and the bad with people. Because if we can't do that, then nobody will connect to the story. If you are not willing to share your emotions with your audience, then nobody learns. And to be honest, I, I quote that constantly with my audiobook students. I, I have a number of... Yeah, you, you, uh, you're a, a teacher as well as a... Uh, I am, yeah. Uh, I've been teaching audiobook narration for about 10 years now. And um, um, and my students are anybody from... Look, I, I, I teach it at UCLA in the UCLA Theater Department, my alma mater. Um, but just one quarter a year, but um, I also work with voiceover artists and who were, you know, maybe they were a DJ or they were a promo guy or a commercial or animation guy and they want to start doing audiobooks, I say, and if I sense that they're having a hard time getting emotion into their read, I say, if you can't, then the listener won't care. You know, hmm. the moment you can connect emotionally with the text, positive or negative, joy or sorrow, um, it is at that moment that the listener connects to you and through you, they connect to the text. So um, because of Jim's sermon that day, that lesson, I learned that lesson through an example of forgiving oneself. So uh, I'm grateful for that every day because I'm way too hard on myself, as we all are. Do you think also, too, sometimes we get very narrow focused Maybe like when we're, when we see somebody who messes up and this is, I think this is pretty kind of a big one that I, I see a lot. And I, I think one of the reasons why we have a hard time connecting with people that we disagree with, that we find certain perspectives there is pretty reprehensible, mm -hmm. um, becoming more so now we've all been locked up. I mean, you know, with good reason, you know, we've been, uh, kind of shutting things down a bit and we're all kind of wound up more, I think mm -hmm. this year than, than any other. Um, but I think one of the divisive as the things that creates perhaps more exaggerated division and certainly more division than is necessary in a lot of cases is that we look at one thing somebody does. And while I mm -hmm. think you're, you're absolutely right in that, that is you in the sense that this is something that came out of who you are. Right. Um, I think it's really easy uh, to think that that is all somebody is. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, like I, I mean, I, and, and here's the thing I, I have been of some type of Christian persuasion for a fair number of years. I, I've become increasingly less, um, conservative in a lot of aspects. Um, and, and certainly I, I think I've, come to a different way in, of relating to people. And I'm about as far from like a Jerry Falwell, you know, Falwell or a Pat Robertson or whoever mm -hmm. you, you can. Um, and one of the things that I find so gross about the extreme religious right is the uh, kind of black or white, it's all or nothing kind yeah. of thinking. And that is the, one of the most destructive things. And when I look at a, a person, even somebody I find is, I, I, I make it, it's not any surprise anybody follows me on social media. I don't I try to be classy about it, but 
I, I can't stand Donald Trump at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry right. I said his and name. I'm sorry can. I said his name. You know, I, it, it angers you know, me. I won't send it three more times because then he'll appear. But um. <laughs> it, it, look, it angers me when people use his last name in its original context, like in terms of like playing bridge. You know, well, this supersedes that. Can you just find another word for fuck's sake? <laughs> anyway. And even then, and even with somebody who I find as personally distasteful, when somebody does something right, even if it's for opportunistic means, even if it's for whatever, if I can find something that somebody does that's good, mm -hmm. if I'm being intellectually honest, I need to give you know, I can't be like, well, that's, you know, person's all bad. And it might be really hard for us to find good things in somebody as divisive as the person I won't mention again. Mm -hmm. um, to think that that person has no good in them is, I think, a, a, a tragedy and a, and, a, and a sad thing. Now it's it's again the more things that somebody does that's gross and and ob like obviously objectionable the harder it gets. I think that if we are people who would espouse things like forgiveness and you know Christian ideals of loving people with respect regardless, I think it's important for us to just recognize that you know I can't I find it a hard thing to be able to, to like this person and I don't like them by and large. And yet, you know, they were created, they exist, they have life. Will they come to a better, more loving, more all encompassing way of connecting with the rest of humanity? It becomes less and less likely the older somebody gets. Yeah. They at one point had that, 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 that seed of life was in there somewhere. And, and maybe I'm, you know, this is my hippie influence because my, you know, my dad's side of the family, they were, they're pretty hippie and, and, and kind of, you know, I mean, I grew up in Santa Cruz for crying out loud. I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Cruz, but I, I describe sure. Santa Cruz like this. It makes Berkeley look like the Bible belt, you know, but <laughs> it, even still, I, I, I don't know. Is that, is that too far out the pale? I get that's a kind of a hard thing to, to wrap your brain around in terms of finding no, no, good, no. even to people you can't stand. I, 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 I. I believe exactly as, as, as you are talking about. Um, um, uh, I think even in the worst of us, uh, and yes, you are correct that we, we look at, uh, um, at everybody and we define them by one act. Um, I think, th I think this is a mistake. We can't, we can't do that. Nobody should be defined by that one moment. Um, uh, we are, we are what we do, but we, what we are not is what we do in just one moment of our lives. I have failed so many times and I want to do better. And I've been striving my entire life to do better. Um, and yet I don't want to be judged and written off for just one thing. Now, if in the case of you know, he who shall not be named, um, <laughs> Um, it's, it's, this is a, a very long, <laughs> a very you don't have to long history of, you know, what he is, uh, uh, right. It, it's hard to see the goodness us. there. Right. Yes, exactly. But, um, 
Look, I, I did a I did a book um, a year or two ago. Um, it was a it was a marvelous experience. It was called Rising Out of Hatred, and I honestly thought it was going to be miserable. I did it because it was a, a specific request, not from the author, um, uh, I, I believe, but from the subject of it. It was um, a book by uh, it's called Rising Out of Hatred by Eli Saslow. And he wrote a book about Derek Black, who grew up. He was at the epicenter of white nationalism. Um, his father was active in the white nationalist movement. His his David Duke was his godfather, right? And um, you can't get much more embedded. In no, that scene you than that. cannot be more of a racist than who Derek Black used to be. And I use that caveat because I think it is essential. He was raised in this culture. He was homeschooled in this culture. His parents didn't let him know others. And by others, I mean that with a capital O, the other, that which is alien to us, that which we fear. Mm. He went to college, uh, a liberal college, liberal, liberal arts college in um, Florida. And he met Jews and he met black people. He met women who were not white nationalists, um, met people of color, uh, met people of, of, met gay people, met, you know, everyone. Sure. And the book, Eli wrote this book. He interviewed Derek. Derek gave his blessing. And Derek not only isn't a white nationalist anymore, he has been denouncing white nationalism, uh, white nationalism and has been, um, um, a uh, uh, a consultant, like a, 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 I'm not sure if he's a political consultant or not, but he freely offers advice about how you can, you know, counteract the, the evil that they're doing. And and I and I remember the reason I didn't want to do this book is because I had to say words, and you can fill in the own racial epithets. Black people aren't good. Women aren't good. Gay people aren't good. Hispanic people aren't good. Uh, Jews aren't good. Whatever. All of those words were said aloud. And I didn't want to say those words aloud. And I thought, this is... I don't want to go home every night and have to live with this. And have to... God, I would drink so much if I had to, like going home at night just to put myself to sleep. And I was like, I, I, God, just to get the taste out of my mouth. And, um, and then I realized that the message of this book is so important that if there's something good in that man who for years, for a decade, he was, he was preaching hate and teaching people, uh, uh, racists, how to take over this country successfully, sadly, um, if that man can have the turnaround that he did, if Derek can now be, if Derek can not only see the light enough, not only to denounce, renounce what he was and what he did, but to help others do the same or to combat it in the future, I have to at least offer that olive branch of, of the possibility of hope that other people could be defined by something more than their worst moment. That's beautiful. Um, it, it's so funny. Like I, I'm, I know that we can go back and edit this. The, uh, the desire to keep the conversation going 
is at odds with my desire to let that sink in. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, um, I know what you mean. Uh, that does bring up a, a kind of sort of connected question. Has there ever been a project that either you've refused, uh, I'm sure there, there may have, I'm sure, or a project that you had to end your involvement with partway through because of something you noticed about what the larger message was or something about the just was at odds with your internal yeah. compass? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to answer that, but first, if you would, I, I, I'm reminded, I, well, I, I, if I could just do a coda uh -huh. from, from what we were just talking about. Of course. Um, there's an inspiration that I drive, that I derive from, um, uh, uh, Fra, uh, Friar, uh, Fra Giovanni Giacondo, who, God, he was a, he was a Renaissance man. He was a, a friar, Franciscan friar, 500 years ago, and he wrote a letter of um, um, joy to um, to a woman in need. He wrote it on Christmas Eve, centuries ago, and he said, um, and I posted this on my Facebook page the day after the most recent national election, um, very dark day, and everybody was down, and I, and I said, remember what this man wrote, the gloom of the world is but a shadow, behind it, yet within our reach is joy. There is radiance and glory in the darkness, could we but see. And to see, we have only to look. And I beseech you to look. And I try to remember that every single day, um, especially now. Um, to answer your question, to get back to your question, thank you for that, letting me of course. <laughs> diverge there. Um, yeah, there have been projects that I've turned down. I didn't want to be a part of this message. Um, if you need it, to not say mention them specifically, totally understandable. Well, I, I, only just not not just for professional reasons, but for reasons of respect. Um, there was a guy who wrote a book about a politician. I was at the beginning of my career, and um, he wrote a book called "The Right Man." If you want, you can go look it up. Um, it was about a politician that I loathed. And this was almost 20 years ago. You could probably figure out who it was um, um, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and yet a man who I would trade in a heartbeat for what we're dealing with now. And um, it was a politician that offended me. And knowing that I, I was, I was, they threw a lot of money at me. Uh, I said, would you narrate this book? And I said, no. And then they started throwing more money. And I said, absolutely not. And they said, why? And I said, because I find him offensive. And they wrote me back and they said, I can't believe you're being so unprofessional. I said, what, are you kidding? You didn't ask me. I didn't, I didn't say, no, I won't do it because he's an asshole. I didn't tell you he was an asshole until you asked me like three times, the third time you, and when you actually specifically said, why don't you want to do it? And, and it's not as if you agreed to it and changed your mind. Exactly. That would be unprofessional. Well, yeah, but I mean. That would be a very, that's a different situation than uh, totally. I don't want to do it. Totally. And I have had buyer's remorse when I've said yes to something and I realized, oh crap, I really wish I'd said no to this. Um, and Kennedy, I, Kennedy. 
You remember that story? Wow. I do. I absolutely do. Well, well done you. Um, yeah, that was a book that was, I actually really did enjoy that book. It was, it was just the author. It was a pain in the neck to, to narrate. Yes, the sure. author didn't understand what it, it the, the similarity between naming somebody with uh, Kennedy, C-A-N-I-D-Y, and Kennedy, as, as in our president, uh, and and having them in the same, same scene. How you doing, said Kennedy. Pretty good, said Kennedy. Are you sure, said Kennedy. Yeah, I am, said Ken, uh, Kennedy. Jesus Christ, really? Can we avoid this? <laughs> um, anyway, um, yeah, I'm talking so much about being religious and ju- just took the Lord's name. Well, uh, we've both copped to being unconventionally yes. religious. So Yes, I, I well, that's true. That, that's true. That's you know. true. Um, anyway, um, Yes, I have had those moments of buyer's remorse where I wish I hadn't said yes. But there came a time, it was at this point where I was like, no, I know going into it. I can't do it. The name of the book is called The Right Man. I mean, if it was the well-deserved hatchet job um, that the man, you know, so eminently qualified for, I would have done it in a heartbeat. (laughs) And yet, the reason I said no, and I tell this to my students all the time, The reason I said no was not because I hate him so much. The reason I said no is because the author deserves better. As different as we are and as misguided as I think he is and as much as I wish he would freaking pay attention to what is going on with the the world and with people who who don't look like us in terms of, you know, he's a white male, in terms of gender and ethnicity, as, as much as I wished he would pay more attention and change his mind, he nevertheless spent a year or more of his time researching this book, writing this book, uh, promoting this book. And if I said yes and wound up sounding as though I'm rolling my eyes every freaking moment that uh, these words come out of my mouth, you know, he doesn't deserve that. Um, as, as, As wrong as I think he is. I'm not paid to be political. I'm not paid to be religious, and yet I am. And I get to choose. You know, everybody draws their line in the sand in a different place. And it is by no means arbitrary. It is personal every single time. And I encourage those who get started in my business, figure out now where your line in the sand is. And and because if you go past it, you will regret it. It sounds like that would apply to a lot of different um, um, industries, even more so these days where, you know, kind of w- with where we are, it's, it's easier to find people that you can align with. There's, there, there are enough people oh, yeah. in the world that you can find people yeah. that are, uh, complimentary, you know, where there can be some harmony involved. Didn't mean you have to agree with everything, but at least finding those points of connection where you can. And sometimes it's more significant at the parts that you can't quite so much. Yeah. It's like, you know, I've I've got a number of friends of mine who are politically opposite than I am. I have very few, but a few family members who are on the opposite side of the political fence. And even if they weren't family, I would still hang out with them. Um, and somebody asked me one time why. And, and I see people who are like cleansing their Facebook or Twitter you know, friends list, followers list. There's a threshold for everybody. There is a threshold for everybody and I get it. But I'm like, I always want to say, do you want to only hang out with people like you? 
Where's where's the? It's the same thing you're criti- we criticize the religious right for is the same things that the yeah. more, you know, painting a target on my back, more left leaning of some of us might do. You know, we're sure we can't. You know, if if we find that so offensive in them, maybe we should not do the, the inverse version of it. Look, there is no potential for growth living among your own kind. There's none, and nobody. Nobody has a monopoly on the truth. Nobody. There, because I, I don't think enough people understand there is a difference between patriotism and nationalism. And most people couldn't even Agreed. define nationalism. If anybody- and there's a difference between an awareness or any thought of objective reality and confusing our perception of that reality with totally. reality. And look, the fact of the matter is, you know, yeah, you can be a person who says, you know what? I love it when my, when my country does the right thing. That is a totally different thing than being somebody who thinks everything my country does is the right thing. Might does not make right. That's, that's, the, that's the phrase, the catchphrase most people can, can point to and remember. But there's a wonderful line from Camelot, the musical, and it said, um, um, oh God, I wish I could, I, I wish I could remember it. Um, um, violence does not mean strength. And I see that played out in our streets every day in our country, even at a t- even before these last six months. Um, I, I have a friend of mine who, who, um, we dated 20 years ago. Um, and she remains one of the closest people in my life. And, um, I remember her saying, there's no such thing as systemic racism. And I said, what? And, and, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I see it every day, even though it doesn't apply to me. Listen, I, I'm in a privileged position. People say to me all the time, I, cause I do interviews a lot for audiobooks, And, um, one of the questions I get asked almost every single interview is, why do you think it is that you work so much? And my response is often the same and quite often either gets cut out of the video that airs or the audio that airs or the, or the print that is actually transcribed and quoted. My answer is because I'm a white man. Narrators reflect the publishing industry. There's a lot of white men writing books. And the industry is, I think it is a good thing. They are gender and ethnicity centric. If a woman is writing a memoir, do you really want a man to be reading it? Of course you don't. So much that my friend Scott, uh, who wrote a a three book series from the perspective of a female protagonist. The last thing he was going to do is narrate himself. And as much as, you know, reporters read read a couple of his books. He's not going to have Ray Porter read a book about a 17 year old girl. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And I know Ray Porter is one of my dearest friends. Uh, I am privileged to be able to say that he's a lovely guy, but the dude don't sound like a, you know, like a, like a girl. Not at all. Um, You know, it is, the industry is respectful, right? Um, If a black man writes a book, they're going to hire a black man to record it. If a, uh, a, a white woman writes a book, they're going to get a white woman to record it. The same goes if you're, um, um, Latin or if you're Persian, 
um, whatever, if you're gay, whatever it is, uh, they will find somebody who matches you to a certain extent that may not be the right word, but well, well there's a who certain level of authenticity yes, who can kind of exactly. have a similar life because there's, you talk about the, the emotion being present in the read yeah. and, um, now, granted, not all uh, narrators, uh, not all authors are good narrators. I love Stephen King. I'll listen to him read on writing. I will not oh, enjoy on writing as much is one of my f- to, yes. It's a great book. It's one of my favorite that books. Well, yes, yes. Absolutely. I don't. I don't want to listen to him read Misery. Well, you know what? I I did listen to him read uh, Bag of Bones because the main. It's written from the first person, and Bag of Bones, the main character, is a best-selling author. And that fits. Yes. Um, it, it, it goes back to that word, authentic, authenticity. You know, like, like for instance, though, like, um, I'm, you know, another book I like a lot. Uh, so uh, Matthew Vines, he wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. He's a very hmm. um, biblically conservative, but very gay affirming person. And, and you know, after coming to, uh, to terms with his own sexual orientation, uh, growing up a fairly co- in a fairly conservative church. Um but the way he articulates his story and his exploration of scripture and kind of unpacking a different interpretation of things, um, he's reading his own experience yeah. and it, it, and even if they didn't have him read it, you're talking about, you know, you know, there is no one gay voice. Yeah. There's the stereotypical gay voice, of course, that we've all heard, but, and, and some people have that. Um, but even still there's, there's sometimes an indefinable, depth when you find somebody that can read the the book and even if they're not the author they can still have that same yeah it strikes the same emotional chord yeah there is there's something that comes up in audiobooks that doesn't come up in other areas of voiceover um and so some of my dearest friends are voiceover people, but have never done an audiobook. We've only done a handful of them. Uh, they primarily, I mean, you were talking earlier about uh, uh, Townsend Coleman. Townsend is the guy, uh, uh, he does the promos. He did the promos many years from NBC. Yeah, he was like a must-see NBC yes, guy exactly. for, for years. And uh, Joe Cipriano. Joe Cipriano was the loveliest guy in the world. And he's the He was the voice that for many years was the voice you heard uh, uh, in front of a commercial. It said, tonight on The Simpsons. I just I, I can't help it. I hear every oh, okay. I know, I know, yeah. I know exactly. Every what time you're every about, time yeah. I speak to Joe, we'll go to Musso and Frank here in Hollywood. You know, hopefully we can get back there when we don't have to wear hazmat suits. But uh, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go there. And every time I hear him say, "Would you pass the salt?" I'm like, "Oh my God!" Tonight on The Simpsons. Here we go. <laughs> anyway, um, my friends, my colleagues, uh, they don't deal with this. Because they're not reading novels aloud. But in my particular niche of the voiceover industry, I have to play every part. Unless it is a a dramatization, an adaptation of an author's work, and they're doing a multi-voice recording. Um, You've done a few of those. Sure. uh, You were involved in uh, Ender's Game, I believe. Ender's Game, yeah. We recently did Charlotte's Web. I've done The Mark of Zorro. I got to play. I got 
not great. Ooh, that not, I got to go check that out. Actually, Val Kilmer Zorro was Val Kilmer played Zorro, and I got to sit next to him for a day. It was so freaking cool, and uh, I got to play um, uh, the governor, the the Spanish governor in California at the time, uh, the bad guy who's Hispanic. I'm like, why the hell would you cast me to do this? But <laughs> I get to work with Val Kilmer, and it got nominated for a Grammy, so I, I won't complain. Uh, but is that available somewhere? Is is that an Audible? Oh thing? yeah, is, it's on Audible. Available somewhere? Sure. The, okay. The mark. Of, I, I was a, I was a big Zorro fan when I was a kid. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, this was an adaptation of the original novel. Um, So, um, yeah, it's 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 totally unaudible. Um, Anyway, uh, unless it is something like that that is being presented like it was a radio, old time radio production, a dramatization, um, it is me. It's me playing everything. And there are a lot of people in every novel that I narrate in every novel, in every fictional story I tell, first person or third person, there are people who aren't going to look or sound like me, who are not my gender, who are not my sexual persuasion, who are not my political alignment, who are not, who, you know, it's sure. not what I was born into. Um, men play women. Um, men play gay men. Women play gay men. Um, um, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, and sure. authors... Uh, well, I, I, <laughs> yeah. Listening to narrators try to sound like I know. It's... <laughs> I know. Uh, believe me. People ask me every single class I do. Somebody says, um, how do you play a woman? Or if they're a woman, they'll say, how do you play a man? I said, well, first thing you got to do is make your peace with the fact that you're never going to sound like the opposite sex. Just get over it. Okay? Uh, do what you can. Don't do too much. Um, anyway, the reason I bring this up is because... Authors, I love them. I absolutely adore them. But sometimes they rely on a stereotype. Uh, there are people, people like Faulkner, people like uh, uh, Mark Twain. Jesus, I mean, look at Huckleberry Finn. Um, the, to be the fair, black the, the, the message that he was trying to communicate was good, even if there's the a message, lot of objectionable things. The in there. message was wonderful. It really was as a white boy hanging out with a former slave. But the way he, when he would say, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, he'd say, I'm Guan, do this. You know, he write, he would write in dialect and it taught later writers. They continue to do it to this day. I get it. I get a black character that I have to play and they'll say, I need to ask you a question. Okay. All right. All right. Well, what do I do? Um, and you are creating a dilemma for the person who has to say that aloud. It is a visual cue for those who are reading the dead tree version, right? The, the actual print version, even, even if it's an ebook version, right? Um, trying to communicate audio to yes, tr- via visual medium. Exactly. Trying to translate one sense into another. And I think about people like yourself, right, who rely on text-to-speech software when somebody sends you a text, an instant message, an email, what have you. Yep. What if somebody did it there? How the hell would that sound when given voice? Or, you know, as you're listening to an audiobook, it matters the way your message, your story is being conveyed. And look, I'm, I'm taking part in a seminar, um, a voiceover seminar, 
and I'm so proud of it. It's going to happen in December, uh, right around Thanksgiving. It's called That's VoiceOver, and it is put on by two uh, voiceover powerhouses, um, Joan Baker and Rudy Gaskins, an African-American married couple who are, man, they are a, a gift. They are the mitzvah to the voiceover industry. They are um, um, powerful proponents of uh, voiceover as an art form. And they, we started talking. I, I reached out to them six months ago and I said, at your conference, given what's going on in the world today, are we going to talk about inclusion and representation in um, in voiceover? And they said, yes, we absolutely want to. Is there anybody you can think of? And I explained, well, yeah. I mean, I, I work in an industry where we have to play everybody, right? I said, I uh, my colleagues come in all shapes and colors and sizes. And they said, could you recommend some? I said, okay. And... They said that would be great. Uh, the panel's going to be at so and so, such and such a time. Uh, please be ready, you know, 15 minutes early. And I, my first thought was, wait, why, why do you want me on it? I was just trying to suggest a good panel. Uh, I, I am a white man. Why, why, are, why am I anywhere near a discussion about inclusion? And I started writing up, drafting an email to them. And then I realized, no, I have to be there. I do. I just, I have to be. I, re I represent the people that aren't being oppressed. I represent the people who are overrepresented in any industry, but also I am a representative of a number of colleagues who need, they don't need to learn. I think I, my colleagues are very woke. My, my colleagues are re really understand, but for any newcomers who are thinking about getting into the industry, I need to represent the mindset that, you know what? When you were asked to play a black character or a gay character or a woman, somebody who is not yourself, or again, if, if the artist was a woman you know, playing a man, you need to do it with respect. Because I have been forced to say things that I never wanted to come out of my mouth. And I need to do it in a way that is as least offensive as possible. And uh, I, uh, years ago, there was a marvelous mystery series. Uh, I think five, five uh, volumes were, six volumes were written before the author passed away. And, um, and there was a charming character, that, uh, a supporting character. Um, the main character was written in first person. And the first person's girlfriend was a social worker. And every time the guy, Lou, Lou Finesca, would show up at, this, at this, uh, his girlfriend's office... Uh, there was uh, a um, receptionist who was flamboyantly gay. And he was, he was written in such a charming fashion, and I always loved it. It was my favorite parts of the book where he was on, <laughs> on, on camera, right? On stage, I should say. And, uh, uh, and yet, the author relied on visual um, shortcuts. Uh, and when I say visual, I mean... You know, uh, visual. I, I, I mean, what I mean is you talking is, about dialectic indicators. Dialectic in indicators. Dialect? Yeah. Yes, he yeah. was. He was relying on shortcuts like um, the way that movies. Okay, movies and novels. Quite often, the authors of each one of them would say, "Okay, uh, the good-looking person is a good person. The the unattractive person is a bad person." Right. So there are so many things you'll notice in novels. Um, um, a person that we are, 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 are trying to being led to not like is overweight. 
And instead of saying they walk across the room, they'll say they waddled across the room. And I'm like, man, I see this. I see this a mile away. It is, um, man, it's a dog whistle. It's, it's, it's really unfortunate. I understand what they're trying to How achieve. How do you convey that to the reader? Right. It, it becomes a very tricky right. thing for a writer. Right, exactly. What they are relying upon is all of our, for the sighted community, a visual cue. They're relying upon what people visually like or don't like. Well, they do the same thing with dialect, right? And when this author wrote this delightful character, he nevertheless used a very unfortunate word to describe his voice. They said he spoke in a lisp. Now, I have been in theater my entire life. I've been in the acting community my entire life. I have so many gay friends, um, not a single one of them lisps. There are many who have an affected manner. There are many who, there's, there's a word that's called, I think the word is mince. Uh, there are people who are fussy. There are people who are, you know, um, you know, they just put a lot of care into what they're talking about, whatever. They are affected. They are effeminate. They are flamboyant, but they don't lisp. Nevertheless, the author has said that this character lisps. So, theoretically, I have to do this all the time. What, how could I transform this marvelous character who is being treated respectfully and yet stay true to the letter of the law, the letter of the text that says he lifts? It would turn it into a caricature. There comes a moment where every voiceover actor has to say, you know what? Um, I don't think I have to follow the letter of the law here. Yeah, the text says it. And if that text really matters to you that much, then imagine it. Put it on top of my narration. I, I am a big believer in, that narrators should listen to authors when they offer advice to other authors. Uh, you talked about on writing, Stephen King's yeah. amazing it's like transformational. Anybody who wants to to write anything, regardless of Absolutely. genre, should read that at least once. Absolutely, and he narrates it himself on 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 audio. So and that it, one works. It that really one works. Does. Like, again, oh my not, god! Not all of his books would work. Oh my god! I wouldn't really want to listen to him read it. There's a but... story that he tells about <laughs> about his, this woman who was like 300 pounds. He used to when he was a kid. He was kind of his nanny, and she'd sit on his head on a beanbag and fart. Oh my god! It was just I heard this, and I'm howling with laughter. It really works because it is authentic for him. But anyway, to get back to it, every time he offered advice to other authors about how to be a better writer, in particular, he one time said, if you want to be a better writer, read voraciously. And I thought, that's the same advice I give narrators. If you want to be a better narrator, read voraciously. If you want to be a better writer, write every day. Oh, wait a minute. That's the same advice I give narrators. So I, I, after a while, I started saying, okay, if a writer says it to other writers, switch the word. From sure. If you want to be a better writer, if you want to be a better narrator. Um, well, Richard Matheson had five rules to be a great writer. And Richard Matheson is my favorite author. I am legend, of, of all course. Time. Uh, yes. Yeah. God, I am legend somewhere in time. So many wonderful novels and episodes of The Twilight Zone and Star Trek. Um he won, he, rule number one for being a good writer is don't be an asshole. 
<laughs> Rules two through five are don't be an asshole. And I thought about that when I had to do that gay character. Yeah, it says that he lisps. But if I follow the letter of the law, or if I say, yeah, he waddled across the room and I make a really big deal about it, or I land on the offensive word, whatever it is, if I do that, then I'm being an asshole. I can do it and I can throw it away. I can, do, I can play a character who's fussy. I'm not playing a character who's gay. I can take a character who is black and not give him a stereotypical black voice. In so doing, I'm following Richard Matheson's advice. So, um, anyway, I'm, I'm really looking forward to being part of that conversation because it's an important one we need to have. Is there still room for, for people who'd like to get involved? And I, I actually, oddly enough, I, I met a, uh, potential new upcoming guest who's had done a lot of media literacy, uh, training and teaching with people, um, who is also a person of color, um, and, wants to get more involved in, in doing oh, of course work. as a matter of fact I, I i can't recommend that uh conference any more highly than i do it's uh, uh yeah. it's marvelous they do it every year either in new york or in la and thankfully this year given that we can't all wear hazmat suits um they're doing it online so yes I don't um, know right. the email address. We'll make sure to address. get some information. Yes, uh, I will. And we'll put it in show notes by the time we release this episode. Then Anybody who wants to could do a Google search with the words, that's voiceover. And if it has the names uh, Joan Baker and Rudy Gaskins, uh, they're at the appropriate spot. And yes, I'm sure um, uh, enrollment is still open. Beautiful. Um Man, I mean, we keep going for like. There's never a dull moment, you know. This no. is one of the the first, you know, because usually around Comic Con, where you know, it's like, oh, you got people coming through here and this and that, and you're off to your thing, and I'm off to my thing, and right. Um, but it's it's uh, it's refreshing to me to hear somebody kind of you know, because you're representing somebody else's work most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, I know you've written some books yourself, yourself. Um, and I say yourselves because you wear so many hats. It's almost like there's more <laughs> than one of you. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's important for people to kind of realize like, oh, that, that person's a person too. You know, going back to kind of our initial thing. Um, I am curious though. We've talked mostly about books and we've talked about uh, narrating and, mm -hmm. and, and some of the things that connect to that. Um, what are some of the things you do when you are not working? The things that oh. kind of help you to have a spark of life? Um, the guy who wrote, was it the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Stephen uh, Stephen Covey. Covey. I've yep. always wondered, is it Covey or Covey? I wasn't sure. Visually, it's it seems like it would I've be always Covey. heard. I've never. I, I don't think I've ever heard somebody say Covey. I, I can so, imagine it must be Covey. You know, um, yeah. simply because Covey just sounds so weird, especially now with COVID. Um, <laughs> uh, he must, that man must be regretting the spelling of his name right now. Well, he, he's since passed on, I think. Oh, has he? Oh, geez. I yeah, yeah. He, he died within the uh, last handful of years. I don't oh, know. I'm I think sorry his, to hear that. Some, some people in his family, I think, have kind of kept on because it's a, a pretty prominent well, sure. brand and idea in the personal growth industry. Sure. But Well, I, I, I learned something valuable from him, God, 20, maybe 30 years ago. I said that, uh, um, forgive me, that was my phone. Don't <laughs> worry about it. No, I, I'm sitting in a vocal booth and, and my phone makes a noise. I'm like, oh, rookie mistake. Um, uh, he well, I, he taught me a great lesson through his books. It said, uh, um, 
every now and again, you got to sharpen the saw. And he said, uh, uh, using the analogy of sawing a piece of wood, after a while, the teeth lose their sharpness. And uh, when the teeth grow dull, your productivity goes down. And there are those who say, no, I refuse to accept this, and I will saw harder and faster and put in twice, thrice, four times as much work. <laughs> and, and it's diminishing returns from that moment on. But then there are those who say, that's okay. I know there's a deadline, but I will stop, and I will go sharpen my saw, and I will come back to my work and be able to get it done faster and more efficiently. And man... There's nothing like downtime. And I tell new prospective narrators all the time, I say, read for pleasure. Do something to make yourself better. Occupy your mind because it becomes a mind-numbing experience after a while. There's only so much focus and attention you can put on a book called 90 Days to a Better Prostate. You know, at some point, it just becomes this... <laughs> I think I get prostatitis just thinking about it. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like, uh, yikes, I'm crossing my legs in sympathetic pain. And and I, I am a firm believer in having outside interests. So I'm grateful you asked about mine. Nobody yeah. ever has. Um, anybody who's been on a Zoom call with me in the society community knows that uh, my background is my background. It's in my office. It's my bookshelves. It's the reading that I do for pleasure. That's been really interesting uh, as we've been seeing people recording remotely from home during quarantine, um, seeing the books on the shelves behind them. Um, I've actually given some thought, ooh, are mine interesting enough? But I realize, yeah, they're me. Um, I have... I, just from that visual, again, for the sighted community, yeah. behind me, there is... Uh, on one side of me, there are books about comic books, about the history of comic books. And on the other side, there's books about the history of film. And anybody who pays attention will realize that books about film are all about silent film. Because I am fascinated with an era of American entertainment, the beginning of the previous century, when you had pictures without sound and sound without pictures. The golden age of radio and the golden age of film. Uh, my, my golden age of film is... So a while before the two of them met. Yes. Yes, it was. It was 1927, 28. And there had been films since the late 1800s. And, um, and TV, I want to say, debuted in 1938. That became kind of a thing around 1950. So there was a, a brief layover when you had one without the other and the other without the other. And, and anyway, uh, pictures without sound, sound without pictures. And... Um, I tell you, when when COVID hit and my girlfriend and I, she basically is, you know, we were quarantining in place. Um, we didn't want to leave you know, take risks. So uh, she is a narrator as well, Suzanne Freeman. She's an audiobook narrator. Um, she also does romance titles under Samantha Cook, a pseudonym. And I only had one booth at the time. Now I've got two, but at the time I only had one booth, so we had to share it. So they were... Oh, that must have put a dent in your productivity a little oh, bit. Oh, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Uh, very much, far fewer books got done during that time. But we both had a workload that we needed to manage. And um, um, there were also very few dinners that we could have together. Uh, because I typically, I, the only way I could uh, stay up with the product, productivity was record until crazy late at night. Um, anyway... Um, 
During the hours that she was working, I said, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to watch TV. I want to come out of this better than I was before. And so I started reading read, uh, uh, far more for pleasure. And I started looking at my bookshelves going, what are the books that I've had for years and never read? And uh, they were the books about silent Guilty. film. Guilty. If you look at my my books in my Audible library, there's a whole mess oh, yeah. that I've, I've gotten. I TBR, gotten baby. To be read. Yeah. yeah. But I, I've learned extraordinary things since quarantine began. I've read um, uh, memoirs and biographies, uh, filmographies, uh, things that just moved me to tears um, about the silent film era. Um Douglas Fairbanks Sr., who was uh, probably the biggest, other than Chaplin, other than the, com uh, the comedic stars, as far as a uh, um, uh, dramatic actor, he is by far the biggest that the silent film had, silent film era had. And he died of a broken heart, literally, um, with the advent of sound. Not because he didn't have a good voice, but because the romance of it was gone. And, mm. uh, and I read biographies of him and, uh, oh, God, um, stuff like this for whatever reason, because I live in Hollywood, I live almost across the street from one of the major studios and, and I've grown up in this culture of, of, um, of film and, um, stories like that. Yeah. They're heartbreaking, but to me personally, they inspire me, you know, I, I want to learn more. So that's what I do. Um, when I'm not in the booth, I read books about silent film or I go, uh, on shopping excursions in person or online uh, for Christmas stuff, because I live for Christmas. Um, I am passionate about Christmas. And uh, uh, those of you who have been to my house know that I put up decorations early and I leave them up far longer than most people think is socially <laughs> acceptable. Um, I was at uh, Hillary Huber, who's a marvelous narrator, one of my... Uh, dearest friends and she, I was at a dinner party at her house a couple of years ago and it, I think it was the beginning of March and a number of <laughs> colleagues were sitting around the table Simon Vance was one of them yeah uh, yep. uh, um, um, Aaron Spencer was another <laughs> I want to say Vikas Adam um, anyway she said so March 1st Scott <laughs> By any chance, have yet? you taken your, your Christmas tree down? Have you taken your decorations down? And I looked at her and all eyes went to me and they all know what a nut I am. And I said, <laughs> I said, have I, have I taken it down? And just inspiration struck. And I said, oh, 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 you're one of those people. You're, I've heard about people like you. You're one of those people who take your decorations down. Oh, I've heard about people like you. I never thought I would meet one. <laughs> only appropriate response. The only really. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, hey, I'm going to put you on the defensive. What do you think? Okay, well, I'm not going to play your game. Uh, anyway, she and I have uh, fun battles online about when it's appropriate to play Christmas music. Um, but yeah. That's that's what I live for. A dear friend of mine just opened his his uh, yearly Christmas store. Um, it's a pop up store. He opens it. Need to get creative uh, how to celebrate it this year. I think, but yeah, it, yeah, it really is. And and we feel as though we don't have much to celebrate. And I know that the election is coming up, and it, who knows which way it'll go. But I'm going to be weird either way. It will you know? be weird, even if I, I, I'm I'm hoping for for. Uh, 
people to come to their senses, but you know, that's, we'll Look, see. Even we, if people don't come to their senses, I will remember what uh, Fra Giovanni said, and I will celebrate Christmas. It might not be as spectacular a celebration as before, but we only get so many of them, and every one of them matters. And um, uh, it, it, do you mind if I tell a, a, a personal yeah. story? I have a feeling go at, for it, at, at this point, your listeners are probably going to go, will this guy ever shut the fuck up? Um, well, those of them who are, I'm more interested in those who want to listen than the ones who, you know, you know, there's there, I don't expect every single listener will listen to every episode. Okay. So you know, right. that's, fine. and they may bail out before this story comes up, but, um, now they got, now, now you guys have to listen because you, you, you won't be in the cool club of those who exactly. understand, who know the context of this next story. And there will be a, there will be a test later, just FYI. Um, I, I live, uh, again, near one of the major studios in Los Angeles, and um, a guy got in touch with me. He sent me a letter. I mean, when's the last time any of us got a letter in snail mail? An actual an letter, actual like letter. A, a, in, in the mail. You know, it, it's funny. There's that phrase, it's a red letter day. And I just started saying, well, that was a red letter day when I actually got a letter, but that's actually where the phrase came from. Um, but this guy said, hey, my name is George Thorison. I'm 74 years old, and I used to live in your house. He said, uh, I lived in your house from 1942 to 1954, and all of my best memories took place in your house. And I'm retired now, and I was looking around on Google, and I, and I wondered, wow, is the house still around? He said, I haven't been in Los Angeles since 2000. And uh, at, at which time he actually drove by my house, as I've learned since. And he said, I went online recently to find out if the house is maybe with like Google Earth, Google Maps, whatever it is, that it, it would show me whether the house still exists uh, or whether it has been somebody rebuilt on that property. He says, not only do I realize it exists, but because of the videos, that you, because you're a narrator, because your name is you know, prominent online, right. I've been able to go to YouTube and to Facebook and see either Facebook live videos or videos that were shot at your house, uh, that your name is attached to. I've been able, I've been able to see my old house. He said, I saw your living room, um, wow. an interview that was conducted in your living room. And it, it was my living room when I was a boy and my girlfriend who was living here at the time, um, the cookbook author and, um, ah, yeah. yeah. And she, she shot a number of, um, Facebook lives in our kitchen. And he said, I got to see my kitchen again. I got to see my living room again. And there was even a video from my office, which used to be his bedroom. And he said, I just wanted to say, I'm thankful that the house is thriving under your ownership. And that's beautiful. Yeah, it, it truly is. And, and I, he said, uh, if you're ever curious about like the history of the house or what it used to look like or, you know, whatever, what used to happen in the neighborhood, you want to learn more about your neighborhood. Um, I am 74, so you might want to get in touch sooner rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I called him that night and we've exchanged at least 50 phone calls and emails since then. And he sent me pictures of, uh, I was recording in my booth. Um, years when we first got in touch and he sent me a picture of his father at a wet bar serving a Coca-Cola across the bar to his son, George, who was like 
seven at the time. And I was in my booth when I read this email. And I looked at that picture and I got chills because his father was standing where I was sitting. What used to be the bar was now my booth. And, and George has sent me pictures of him on the bicycle that he received for Christmas with the Christmas tree in the corner of the living room where I always put up my Christmas tree. Which, getting back to my love of Christmas. Ooh, wow. Yeah, he sent me that picture, and I immediately went out to my local Walgreens, and I went through their photo processing department, and I had it printed, and I put it in a Christmas frame, and I put it underneath my Christmas tree in the same corner where he had opened, where he had gotten on top of his gift, the bicycle. And I emailed it to him, and I said, you have no idea how much it matters to me, the history that you've shared with me. And I wanted you to know that, as you can see in this picture of your picture, the echoes of every Christmas you had in my house are still being heard to this day. And that's what Christmas means to me. It's tradition. It's ways to connect with people. And I connect more powerfully to Christmas now because of the gift that George gave me by sharing his history with me. And I think that's what all storytelling is. It's sharing with one another, the good and the bad, the inspiring and the despair-filled, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do when I'm not narrating. I go out and I look for what else I can hang on my walls or display on the tree. Because uh, things like that we're, we're limited time on earth and things like that, they matter. Uh, we could talk for a long time, not least of which is your own. Uh, I mean, we don't have to, we could probably just open up that ear, that worm. I mean, you had your own successful battle with cancer and, yeah. and everything else mm -hmm. that you've gone through. And, um, you know, uh, I would be here forever, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming and joining me if there is anything actually since i did obviously open up the can of worms you don't have to mention that directly but is there anything that you would have hoped that we would have touched on that's the beautiful thing about podcasts is that they're open-ended a little bit well of course no i i i never have an agenda going into a conversation whatever you want to talk about or i whatever comes up uh you mentioned the cancer thing but because it's um, it deals with what we were talking about immediately previous. That's when I became crazy for Christmas. It was in 2012. It was when I was in cancer treatment. And I had a very treatable form of cancer. It was thyroid cancer. And uh, as several doctors said to me the exact same words, this is the most uh, well-behaved tumor on the planet. So it must be something that is uh, that they are taught <laughs> in medical school as, as to how to tell um, patients that, but nevertheless, you hear that word cancer and you start wondering how much time do I have? And I was in a clinical trial in New York and it was ending. It ended the day before I had booked my flight to go to Australia with my then girlfriend's uh, family where she was from. And uh, the trial ended on December 20th. I flew back to LA on the 20th. I flew to Australia on December 21st, and I knew I would not get a tree that year. And there are no Christmas trees in Australia. Believe me, it is summer uh, at Christmas time in Australia, being in the other hemisphere. 
and um, and I knew what I was going without. And the last month that I spent in New York in the trial, I saw the city wrapping itself up in Christmas. Right, I went to the Rockettes. Uh, a Christmas show at Radio City Music Hall, and I went to the. Uh, she and I went to the uh, um, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and I did everything Christmas that I could because I knew it was all I would have, and I knew that I was facing an illness where I potentially might not have very many Christmases to come, and I said, I will never underdo Christmas again. I will always overdo it, <laughs> and I have ever since, and it gives me joy. So. Anyway, I'm one of those people, Good. everybody listening, I'm one of those. <laughs> Beautiful, Scott. And thank you so much for, for that extra little little gem of, of uh, the unpacking the why. Uh, and <laughs> thanks for being on, man. This has been really, really cool. Some, some uh, well, look, it's a, deep explorations of things. I, I'm really grateful. I don't usually get to go into subjects like this or to the extent, the depth that we have. And uh, I'm just telling you, it's a privilege because... Uh, every time that I have interviewed you, I have sat in awe of what you do, who you are. Thank As you a, very much. It's Thank true. You. I'm not here to blow smoke up anybody's ass, but the fact of the matter is, you were a man who has faced difficulties that I have never known. And you have risen above them, and you have thrived. And I find your own personal story inspiring. I love the fact that... Part of the title of this podcast is the word adventure because that seems to be the way that you approach life, and I uh, I respect it a great deal. So it's been a privilege Thank to you. be here. I appreciate that. As always, everyone, adventure is a state of mind. How you live it is up to you. Mm-hmm.